0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors Podcast. Today, we are excited to have the CEO of Toby Anand Srivastava, who's going to talk a lot about how the company is disrupting the technology landscape. What are the major trends that he sees that are going to change the way we live our lives over the next few years? So, you know, delay, let me actually pass it to Anand, who's going to give us a quick background of the company and the various areas it is disrupting, as well as a bit of background on himself. Thank you so much, Anurag. I really appreciate the opportunity. And for the
1: listeners out there, I hope that you'll find this session really inspiring. For me, of course, this journey coming to Toby is something that I accomplished three years ago. I moved from a career that I had at Intel for 15 years for a really exciting opportunity to drive uh, a significant change in the world with the adoption of a new type of technology that the company has been working on. Toby is a world leader in the field of eye tracking and is a pioneer in a new field we talk about called attention computing. Both of these type of technologies are within the human computer interaction domain, and they fall under the expectation that machines will communicate with humans on human terms.
0: That's pretty impressive. In fact, I, you know, I had a chance over the last couple of days to see some demos on YouTube. It's really phenomenal what some of the, this technology can do, but perhaps you could give us a background, you know, just from a use case point of view, What are some of the companies or the industries that are benefiting from your technology? One of the major thrusts that we see is actually underpinning
1: the the core capabilities of of our technology is for machines to understand where people look. And fundamentally, this is critically important because humans process 80% of the information we gather is processed relative to our vision senses. So 80% of the information that our brains process are really coming through our eyes. And so understanding where a human is looking actually gives a enormous amount of insight into what we are interested in and is also in many ways, a direct link into the brain and can actually provide clues into your mental health and other aspects as well. What we see is of course, when we look at the opportunities to leverage this technology, we see basically a very broad opportunity base that are broken up into three major types of categories. One is that customers can use our technologies to make more innovative devices, devices that are safer, that are higher performance, higher fidelity. The second aspect is that we can, of course, deliver to users incredible experiences, experiences that are more immersive. In com- some cases, we have the potential to change people's lives with you know folks that are disabled, for example, using their eyes to communicate. That's a truly incredible experience for somebody who's been limited in how they can participate in the world. And the third aspect of our technology is that by understanding where people look, we're able to unlock profound insights. That could be from a company that understands what consumers appreciate about their products to being able to detect early signs of uh, Alzheimer's or being able to even detect potential for autism in infants. This is the kind of insights that our technology is able to unlock. We think the opportunity set is quite broad. And we fundamentally believe that over time, uh, this kind of technology will become something that is commonplace, something that we interact with every single day.
0: So when, you know, when there's, as you derive your revenue, how do you break that down in terms of, you know, what kind of revenue do you generate from, let's say, you know, somebody who's doing marketing, somebody who's doing gaming, R&D, like, how do you break that down? And in your own mind, how do you think of the end mar- each of those end markets, perhaps in the addressable market point of view, or you know how big you are or how tapped you are in each of those sections? Fundamentally, what I'd say is we are in
1: the very early stages of the adoption of this technology. So even though we are a 20-year-old company, the opportunity for the adoption of this technology has been quite niche in the past, and we're finally starting to get to some sort of scale in where this technology can actually be adopted for mass market solutions. When we approach the marketplace, we actually approach it in two fundamental ways. One that's a little bit more horizontal in approach. We talk about that business as the integrations business. Think of that as more of a picks and shovels business where our solutions help our OEMs build better products or these solutions are integrated into somebody else's solution towards an end customer. We also actually have a couple of vertical type products. And we talk about them as products and solutions. And again, this comes from our history in the space for the last 20 years, where we realized that in order to go and get end customers to actually get value from our solutions, we had to go all the way from custom hardware, all the way to end user software. So we have a couple of these vertical operations as well. When we look at both of these areas, we actually see that in the marketplace, we sell both of these kinds of solutions into six primary markets where we see adoption of our technology starting to increase. And they are gaming, they are extended reality, so virtual and augmented reality, the automotive space, healthcare, behavioral studies and consumer research, and education and and training. So those are the six vertical markets we see.
0: That's awesome. Perhaps we can dive into each one of them and let's say talk about how this technology is used in each one of them. In, in, in gaming, for example, I saw the demo on YouTube, but would love to get from, uh, you know, your sense as to how you have seen that business evolve, you know, how people were using it a few years ago, how they're using it today, and how you think they could be using, uh, you know, in the future. When we consider the opportunity on
1: gaming, we see multiple potential values for the technology we bring. The first one, which is actually being picked up by consumers today, is that eye tracking and attention computing offers another intuitive way to interact with games and it makes the games more immersive. This is particularly appealing for gamers who play simulation games. These are the kinds of games where a gamer actually wants to be in that environment, be in that situation. Great example is the game Microsoft Flight Simulator, for example, you know, it's a very high end game with the ambition that even though you're playing on a computer, they really want to impart that sense of realism about the kind of world that you're in that's actually a good representation of of the earth, as well as the controls that it takes to go and fly the game. What our solutions enable is a natural way as you move your head uh, or your gaze around to move the camera as if you were sitting inside a plane and looking around your cockpit and you get sort of six degrees of freedom in a pretty natural sense. This kind of use case is something that gamers actually crave once they start to use it. And even though we've been on a pretty long journey here, what we've realized is that once you start to deliver this kind of experience and gamers appreciate it, they become your biggest advocates. And specifically in Microsoft Flight Simulator, gamers went to the studio and said hey they want to see support for our solutions that's sort of what we're starting to see on the gaming end pretty strong support for our immersive gaming capabilities
0: yeah i actually remembered something i think you know one of the older games me was using that little bar to track how people were but I, i i remember in one of the other consoles they don't give that anymore is there a reason behind it you think they're probably going towards a headset like what, what's really happening in the world where, you know, will the headset take over this particular product? Yeah, I think maybe you're referring to maybe, is it the Wii Bar? Yeah, the, or Wii bar. Yeah, the Wii yeah. Bar. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and again, what we see is, of course, the, the role of those kinds of sensors have different kinds of uses in the implementation they have. In that, you know, We kind of space, it was being used to track where your hand controller was in space. What uh-huh. we are trying to do, of course, is we have a bar under the monitor that understands where the user is looking on a screen. And where their head is positioned. And based on that, it provides input into the game to basically display the right information based on the action the user is taking. So we see the adoption of our kind of technology as being quite new. Now, what we see as a sort of similar kind of use case that's also of course becoming more prevalent is the use of our technology in vr headsets where the same need for immersiveness exists in the gaming context there's even more of an expectation that you'll have a very good visual experience and a more natural input methodology and you can imagine in vr when you have these headsets on your on your head you know, you're not coming in with a mouse and a keyboard. And so you really have to think about what kind of intuitive ways do you have to interact with the game and your eyes and your gaze is a really good way, a good way to do provide that kind of input.
0: So when you look at this, are you competing with, you know, the likes of, you know, Facebook or, or soft or Nintendo for this thing, or are they using some of your technology?
1: Yeah, what we would say, of course, is that, you know, from our perspective, we're pretty narrow in our focus. We're focused on attention computing and eye tracking. And when we consider the companies in the space that offer the full systems, take Sony, for example, we've announced the fact that we are in negotiations to be the eye tracking provider on the PlayStation VR 2. We look at the providers of the overall solution as potential customers that includes a Sony. It would include companies like Meta or other people who are going to be in the virtual reality or augmented reality space. Some companies have capabilities in-house, but we think that our specialization
0: and focus in this area makes us
1: a pretty compelling partner for them to choose.
0: You know, the one area that has excited me quite a bit over the last few years has been healthcare. Now, for a while. But unfortunately, in the US, it's not, you know, it's not as advanced as it should be. And every time I get excited about healthcare, something bad happens, and we really don't get any revenue or the market doesn't change. But last, I would say 12 months, I have been a little more excited with Microsoft buying Nuance and Oracle buying Cerner, which could lead to kind of modernization of that industry. And if when that happens, you know, technologies like yourself can be embedded in it. What has been your experience of how healthcare is using your technology, you know, perhaps in Europe or any other area? And and, and if you can, you know, compare it to the US as well, that would be good. I think, again,
1: one of the areas that we see as a strong opportunity to use our technology is in healthcare. And part of that is because we actually have a pretty high fidelity sensor that can detect minute movements in your eyes. And again, the way your eyes move can be indicators for all kinds of medical conditions. And they can help, for example, be early indicators of things like Alzheimer's. But if you just think about ophthalmological tests alone, there's a tremendous opportunity to go and miniaturize and simplify the kind of diagnostic tools that you need to go and and actually study vision. An example is we actually have a customer of ours uh, who's in India, who basically uses a VR headset with our technology to do ophthalmological testing in remote villages. Imagine being able to do that today, right? I mean, typically you have to be in a hospital with a pretty expensive piece of machinery. Now you have something that you can take that is mobile and something you can get into inaccessible areas. Another example in the United States is where we have A partner of ours called SyncThink that is looking at doing traumatic brain injury assessment on a VR headset on the field. It's actually an epidemic that, you know, traumatic brain injuries and concussions for uh, athletes that play contact sports, almost 10% of those athletes will get, will have a, you know, traumatic brain injury, but less than 50% of those are diagnosed because, Typically, it's quite hard to tell that you've actually had one. And of course, if you're expecting somebody to show up to a hospital when they don't particularly feel bad, it's quite easy to miss that and go and diagnose and support that. Of course, it would be way easier if you said we have a remote tool that can go and assess you and say, hey, you know, you probably have a concussion or a traumatic brain injury. You need to go to the hospital now. So customers like that are implementing them. I think in general, of course, as you indicate, healthcare takes a little bit more time. These are medical grade devices, but we see the opportunity for disruption and tech technology innovation. And we think that over time, this is a really exciting space for us to be active in.
0: Another use case that I really enjoyed reading about was market research. I thought that was pretty phenomenal the way, you know, the eye tracker can see on a shelf, how many, you know, different bottles of, you know, olive oil, somebody's looking at and why they're looking at it. How, so give us a, you know, bit of a history of how that evolved, who's using it and some of the cooler, you know, results you came across.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, right now, if you look at the roster of our clients that do market research this way, it's sort of a who's who of the major, you know, GN brand companies. You know, you can talk about a Procter & Gamble, Unilever, et cetera. But I want to give you actually a little bit of a personal story of of sort of how I see this playing out. You know, my job before this at Toby was running the desktop business at Intel. And one of the things that I was typically responsible for was having input into our design choices for box processors. So again, a processor on its own, it's sort of a piece of silicon, nothing exciting to look at. So typically what we showed off in events and, you know, what was on our merchandising was the picture of the box associated with the family that we were launching. And I remember that, you know, I would get an email and they would send me a couple of pictures and say, okay, so which one do you prefer? And I remember making, the choice. And then when I got to Toby, there was a really interesting concept that somebody came in with. It's almost the equivalent of sort of a Heisenberg principle that once you start measuring, you start getting biased answers. If you ask somebody the question, what do you prefer? You start getting your sort of active brain moderating your response. And I absolutely remember this in the case of this example that I had at Intel. There was sort of a blue colored box very much in brand line with intel's branding colors of blue there was another box that was a little bit between hot pink and orange and i remember when i was responding like i was like well is that kind of pink how's that going to work with gamers you know but again it didn't sort of speak to what caught my eye and i didn't even think about that at that point that that was even relevant i was really thinking that the right way to answer this was to sort of intellectualize the question but what the studies would say is actually what you want is to really get the reaction. What is holding your eye before you start to get that biased by people's active brain sort of interpreting what they've done. That's true insight. And that kind of insights actually super valuable and without
0: a methodology
1: like this, attention computing, it's very difficult to get to.
0: I completely agree with you because I would have done the same thing. Now, do people really change their brand strategies or completely the way to go to market based on this or. Is it just one of the many inputs that they take in their market research? Um,
1: I would say that generally there's many inputs that come in, but I think the power of this thing to change how people design their merch or where they make their investments is pretty substantial. I'll give you an example with the customer I'm not going to name, but we have a customer that spends an enormous amount on in-store merchandising. You know, it's a uh, talk about it in the hundreds of millions of dollars per year. And one of the questions that they have is, you know, this is something that they've been doing pretty consistently, and they have very few metrics on the ROI of that investment. And again, understanding this can be quite difficult. And of course, doing the same thing over and over is quite easy. So they commissioned a study to go and look at the effectiveness of the merchandising they were putting in store. And it enabled them to get sort of, you know, tens of millions of dollars of savings because they could see that some of the collateral that they put out had very, very low ROI. And so you see sort of a, you know, multiple, uh, you know, sort of ROI impact of doing this kind of study that then of course gives you a good input into your future merchandising choices.
0: We definitely see those kinds of examples playing out uh, in spades. So what about design? Because I'm just thinking out that this would be such an interesting feature when the real estate on a phone or any other device is so small, To know, you know, what people are looking at and not looking at is a a very high ROI, you know, I I guess, use case for them. and, And again, design is one of the most hottest area for any industry at this point. You have customers that are using to not just do market research, but design a product. Absolutely.
1: So we have people that are using our technology for package research to make choices on that end. We have people that are looking at it for advertising. Again, you know, when you think about your web presence and digital store, there's a lot of things where, again, where people's attention is drawn on your particular asset is incredibly important because that may be the primary vehicle for commerce for you as a, as a company. And so the use cases are pretty broad. Again, one of the challenges is actually awareness of these technologies. They're still, you know, relative low in terms of overall penetration. And one of the things, of course, that we've been driving is to make these types of technologies more easily available. This is one of the benefits of consumerization of this technology, of having it have much broader footprint, which means that it's more easily accessible to these companies. So that's definitely a trend we're driving, and we hope that that will mean that more companies can easily access this and take advantage of this in in their uh, choices.
0: So, you know, a company like yours, which is again in a very early phase of disrupting the space, you know, you typically don't see the cycles of recessions and expansions. In your experience over the past few years, how has business shifted based on macroeconomic conditions? How did your business actually change during the pandemic? You know, so give me some context around how you are dependent on the macro environment. Yeah, absolutely. So, We are very much a growth company. And part of that's sort of where we are in in our
1: early phases of penetration. But there are, of course, specific macro trends that can actually be quite impactful for us. One of the big things we talked about is this focus on research. We've talked a little bit about, you know, market research from an enterprise or commercial context, but one of our very large businesses is also enabling scientists to do research on a variety of different areas of science, psychology, neuroscience, et cetera, where they're also buying our products and solutions. These two two parts of the business represent actually the majority of our revenue going back in history. And in the pandemic, one of the biggest impacts that we saw was the inability to do in-person research, which basically means their ability to invest in the solutions that we deliver wasn't going to be possible when you couldn't actually conduct this kind of research. How that played out for us from a financial perspective is, Going into the pandemic years, we saw a pretty steady 20% type of CAGR. And then we were basically flat over the years of the pandemic because of of the impact in our ability to go and sell products that our customers could use. Now, underneath that, of course, we had this trend of these integration businesses that were getting more mature. We've talked about, you know, our focus on extended reality. We're starting to see that market on the virtual reality side really start to mature. Now, exiting the pandemic, we think that we're sort of in a new phase of growth, growth that will be likely faster than our pre-pandemic area, and something that we think is sustained over the course of the next decade. And a lot of that is going to be powered by these mass market opportunities for our technology, in addition to the scale we expect on both research in the university context as well as on the enterprise side.
0: So you dived into the revenue aspect of this. I was going to go there next. You know, again, revenue has been volatile the last six um, probably 11 to 12 months have been extremely bad for technology companies Valuations have come down people are you know worried about companies that have negative free cash flow or you know are in the growth phase but don't have you know that level of profitability that comes with a more mature company. How have your investors responded to that concept and what are your kind of the broad messages to them as to you know if we do get into a deeper more problematic economic downturn. How do you sustain your business in in a world where free cash flow matters at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think from our investors' context, I think there is a desire for us to be a profitable and sustainable company. This actually predates all of the corrections we've seen over the last six months anyway. And again, from our perspective, our number one focus is growth. A lot of that is actually because we've made long-term investments into some of these mass market opportunities and we see them ready for harvest. Those opportunities, we believe, actually aren't as directly impacted by the recession macroeconomic trends we have today. What we said to our investors late last year was that we expect to reach EBIT profitability during the during twenty twenty three and we think our long-term revenue outlook is to be at one point five billion sec, which is you know approximately ten to one to the dollar in twenty twenty five. That would put us a little bit over two and a half X our revenue from twenty twenty one. Again, I think what we see right now is very strong fundamentals in our business, specifically in areas like virtual reality where we're seeing, you know, massive investments in the metaverse. We think we're a key enabling technology and in pole position being sort of the only third-party company to have integrations into headsets in in production. We think that puts us in a really good position to harvest all the ecosystem investments going into the metaverse. We see longer term trends around you know, the automobile space with driver monitoring systems. We think trends like that will really support our revenue and profitability ambitions.
0: Yeah, you talked about two very important, I would say longer secular themes that we, we should talk about now, one being the metaverse. So what is your overall view as to how that's going to shape up, given the amount of investments that are going by meta. And I mean, you can go through every major companies investing in that concept. You know, how do you think the world is going to evolve over the next, you know, three to five years uh, as it relates to this?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, in my view, I really think about the metaverse very much first and foremost as an opportunity for us to transcend our physical limitations. And if you sort of You know play history back a little bit i would say that in many ways we're already in aspects of the metaverse today though we may not recognize all of it you know today we're on a video call right now you know and you know if you think about this a decade or so ago or two decades ago this was not the norm whatsoever nobody was on video conferencing video conferencing was quite difficult and poor from an experience perspective i think of course the ambition for the metaverse is to get much farther in that process of making our digital collaboration and environment be almost a good replica for what we enjoy in physical meetings and physical collaboration. And that, of course, has a pretty high bar. My personal view, of course, is that our North Star in many ways is sort of from my Star Trek roots. And I think about something like the holodeck, right? That's the kind of experience I envision. It's not a place where we would spend all day, all the time, but I think there are some incredible things you can do in a metaverse, which can be hugely beneficial. And in some cases, kind of situation that you may not be able to replicate in the physical world at all.
0: Yeah. it Sometimes it sounds to me, most of the modern innovation comes from Star Trek. But, but but let's talk about some of the use cases that, you know, would relate directly to your business or expand. Like, you know, it, how, how do you see if you see x amount of an application or or this kind of an application that would directly lead to more of your products being sold yeah one easy
1: aspect that we see for example and you know we talk about in the context of consumer and and commercial or enterprise On the consumer side, what is a really clear driver is one, gaming, but gaming tied to very high fidelity, immersive experiences. I think there's an expectation in the metaverse, in VR today, that the kind of visual experience I would like is basically photorealistic, retina quality. And that is almost impossible to render in a device that's also expected to be comfortable to wear. You know, you're thinking about two large screens you know, very close to your eye and the graphics needed to go and deploy that actually is it's just a physics problem to actually get that to work properly. What we can, of course, offer is information about where your eyes look. And the reality is actually our brains do an incredible job of filling in details that our eyes cannot pick up. We can only see a very small part of our field of view in high quality. If you know that upfront, then the headset and the graphics can be used to render just that portion in high fidelity, in high quality. You can take advantage of a good display, focus on that spot, render it in high quality, and the rest of it can be rendered at a much lower quality. That results in a much better user experience, but it also gives that level of immersion that you want in a really good gaming experience to make somebody want to put a headset on. So we see that actually coming out and, you know, we've seen Sony, for example, talk about foveated rendering as one of the pillars of their next-gen headset. We think that really drives the need for the kinds of solutions we have.
0: So my personal thesis is that augmented reality would be a far better or far bigger thing than than virtual. And my only reason is because it'll be very difficult to sell these expensive headsets to the world while you already have a massive install base of you know high end uh, Samsung and and I and and Apple phones, which is you know it's it's easier to come up with that. What's your take on that? And the second, how does your technology? Uh, Can it benefit from uh, if we have, uh, you know, increased adoption of augmented reality?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I take that sort of in two parts, on the one hand, I think that uh, I, I agree with you that augmented reality represents a much larger volume opportunity. But I believe that virtual reality, if it actually instantiates itself the right way, becomes a premium entertainment experience, whether that's for gaming or social or something else. I think the kind of market that we should expect for that kind of product, I think is in the hundred million units type of market. You know, think of it as a proxy for consoles today or high-end PC gaming. And I do think actually, if you do that right, it can actually be more immersive than the kind of PC install or the console install base that you have today. So I think that's a massive opportunity on the entertainment side. On the augmented reality side, of course, the vision is that this replaces our smartphones, which means that it's a billion plus units a year. There again, the kind of technology we have is crucially important because we're talking about convincing people like me who don't wear glasses to wear glasses all day. And the question is, why would I do it? And for me, contextual information about what I'm looking at can be a huge application for why it could be interesting for me, for me to wear a device. But that means that you can't give me information around my full field of view. Maybe you need to know that I'm looking at that bus stop and give me information about when the next bus is showing up. That requires knowledge of where you're looking, not just everything that's in your field of view. We think that that kind of use case is one of many reasons why eye tracking is a must-have in augmented reality glasses as well.
0: Now, I completely agree with you on that. What about autonomous driving? And, you know, that's, that's another, I would say, uncharted territory that we need to, you know, figure out when that's going to happen. How's your technology could be part of it? And, uh, you know, so what's your vision of when do we see autonomous vehicles on the road and how do you fit into that schema? So one, I wish I had the
1: crystal ball on when will autonomous driving come in? I do. I would say that I'm actually a big believer in the value of autonomous driving because underpinning sort of the intention to go there is that we can deal with the epidemic of uh, automobile accidents, you know, fatalities and injuries that are an epidemic across the world. I think autonomous driving is sort of the end state of us getting to be, you know, towards this vision, zero perspective, of reducing the impact of traffic fatalities, I would say where we are overall of course is that we see more and more investment in safety features in cars whether that's ADAS now and you know moving on to things like driver monitoring what we see from our solution point of view is that we're already seeing legislative mandates in places like the European Union for camera based driver monitoring systems a car that can understand if the driver is looking at the road are they drowsy are they distracted that's the kind of technology which is very much in our wheelhouse The European Union is legislating that that needs to happen by 2026. We think, of course, that other parts of the world, including the US, who's looking at, you know, transportation legislation right now will follow suit and have similar kinds of technologies. I think that's phase one. The second phase, of course, is that you build your way up to autonomous driving as you sort of add on top of these features. And the interesting thing, of course, is on the way to full autonomy, you have levels of semi-autonomy in autonomous driving, things like level three ADAS, where a driver is expected to be able to take the car back. And one interesting aspect is as drivers get more and more used to the machine driving on its own, their ability to suddenly take control is actually impacted. And we've actually seen this in research we've done with NASA on how pilots deal with autopilot. You know, they sometimes effectively have their brain shut off looking at things even on a runway when you expect that something's pretty clear. And so part of the challenge I think we will have as an industry is when you get to level three autonomy, you need to make sure that a driver is ready to take the car over if needed. That requires, again, an understanding of the cognitive state of the driver. Are they ready to pay attention? These are things that the car is going to have to do pretty much automatically, knowing when it has to go and interrupt the driver to get them to pay attention. That, again, continues to increase the need for technology like ours to do that in a you know, good user-friendly
0: way. So gaming is definitely one of the biggest uh, use cases. What's, what about sports? That, that's another area where I think down the road, things could get really interesting for, you know, for mixed reality or virtual reality. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think
1: if we look at sort of the areas that we participate in, we talked a little bit about education and training. You know, we talk about training in the context of maybe, you know, frontline workers, but in general, anywhere where you're trying to understand people's decision-making processes, the opportunity to understand what you're looking at and sort of the process you follow is critically important. Sports is a great example. And we see the opportunity in sports play out in maybe three distinct ways. The first one is actually to make the viewer experience better. And we see that with eSports now, people are using our technologies in these broadcast events to explain how eSports athletes are making the right choices. We see that with the video games today, and we're seeing that being used with other partners for other types of sports. So we have a partner of ours called HeadVantage, who's looking to integrate eye tracking into the bill of a baseball a cap or into a helmet and provide context into decision-making that players are making on the field. So that's a great sort of example of how you sort of allow sports to be more engaging for the viewer. The second aspect of course, is from a training perspective. You know, there's a huge focus on understanding what, drives performance for a player. For example, if you want to make sure that the quarterback has actually read the defense before they make a pass, that kind of information can be critical in understanding what makes one player great and what makes one player make a bad choice. We see that aspect as well playing out in sports. So multiple elements in sports that we see opportunities for our technology.
0: Now, this is some excellent use cases, Anand. Thank you. One last question from me, and that would be on the supply chain aspect of it. I'm curious as to, You know, what do you make of a lot of the troubles that are happening in China about, you know, the hardware parts or, you know, silicon issues in in that region? How how are you protecting yourself for any of the, you know, issues that you could face down the road or or perhaps already facing it to take care of this, this problem?
1: Yeah, again, I think there's two aspects for us from a supply chain perspective. One is sort of the impact to be able to ship our own products. And, you know, we do have components that come from from Asia, and we've actually made sure that we've sort of increased our level of safety stock to ensure that we have continuity of supply. So I think that's certainly one aspect that we were quite concerned about last year, but we feel pretty good about where we've been in terms of being able to manage through that. We are seeing, of course, here and there, increased impact on costs like everybody else. The second aspect, which is a little bit harder to, of course, predict is, The impact on our customer supply chain. So in many cases, when we are an enabling technology in somebody else's solution, if they're gated by supply chain challenges in in the ecosystem, of course, their ability to ship and therefore our ability to recognize revenue can be impacted. We've of course seen this in some cases in the computing industry, but you know, you see this in spades and things like automobile industries today. I expect, of course, that this situation will continue to improve. We're seeing GPU prices get back to normal. So I fully expect that, you know, by the end of this year and going into 2023, we'll start to see normalization on that
0: end. Thank you, Anand. This has been a very, very interesting session. Any final words from you before we close?
1: Once again, I want to thank you for the opportunity Anurag and I hope your users or your readers and the listeners find this super exciting as well.
0: No, it has been very exciting. Thanks everybody. And look forward to our next conversation.